This is a Rooster Teeth production. June 6, 1971. Hughes Air West Flight 706, a McDonnell Douglas DC-9 with 49 people on board, is climbing out of Los Angeles' LAX airport, bound for Salt Lake City. Nine minutes after taking off while climbing through 15,500 feet, the plane is struck by a U.S. Marine Corps F-4 Phantom fighter jet. Both planes tumble to the ground with only one crew member of the F-4 Phantom able to eject. How did two aircraft, one of which is a military fighter aircraft, end up not seeing each other and colliding over California? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. We're back talking about uh, plane crashes. Uh, as always, before we get started, I want to remind people to uh, give us a follow on social media on Twitter and Instagram at Black Box Down Pod. Uh, we post images and supplemental content there. Maybe one of these days you need to send me a picture of Booger we put on there, Chris. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like a pilot Booger, co pilot Pilot Booger. booger. Um, or first officer Booger. Yeah, I would say if you are already following us on Twitter or Instagram, uh, share one of our posts, uh, retweet it yeah. or whatever with a friend. Say, hey, check out this podcast um, Yeah, because we'd appreciate that. I see some people do that every now and then. I'm always really appreciative when I see that. If you've done it, thank you. And if you're planning on doing it, thank you. In advance. <laughs> <laughs> so Hughes Air West Flight 706, it's a uh, commercial flight that was in a midair collision with a military plane. Uh, we've done midair collision before, you know, we covered uh, those planes that collided over the Amazon in Brazil. That was the one where it was the uh, private plane just taking off for the first time, like it's it's virgin flight colliding with just a regular passenger. Yeah, it was being taken back to its uh, its new owner from the factory and it collided yeah. with a, uh, an airliner. This one's a little different, a little, slightly older uh, incident back from, you know, the early 70s, 1971. Just to give it a little frame of reference here. June 1971, the Vietnam War was still happening. So, uh, you know, the military had, I, 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 how, do, how do I put this? The military had maybe like a heightened presence on the West Coast. You know, there was maybe more frequent uh, military training. You know, maybe you saw a few more fighter jets than normal on the West Coast at this time in history. Could there even be more like defensive measures in place? Like it wasn't likely that they would try and attack the west coast but right yeah i don't think that was necessarily a concern it's possible you know that they were at the ready in case something happened you know you don't want to be unprepared but i think yeah. they didn't realistically expect uh any air threats that they'd have to deal with so um i don't know i'm, I'm going to preface this again uh neither chris nor i are pilots we've never taken flying lessons uh i'm just an enthusiast about aircraft but specifically i'm an enthusiast about civilian aircraft i, I know a little bit about military aircraft but it, i definitely do not know as much about military aircraft as i do about passenger planes. So mm -hmm. I feel like I, I should give that preface before I, I go any further. So the, the F-4, just I guess for a little bit of background, I mean, this was a, uh, a supersonic military fighter jet. You know, I believe its top speed was around double the speed of sound, you know, Mach 2, relatively new at the time and, uh, you know, considered a very high-tech uh, fighter jet for the time. I don't think it's really flown anymore. You know, there's newer planes that have replaced it. But for the time, it was, you know, very, very cutting-edge technology. We say it's like twice the speed of sound. Do the fighter jets go that fast, like in combat, or is that for them to be able to go from place to place in combat, or like what? You know, I think if you're going Mach two, you would be going from point A to point B. I don't think you're you're necessarily engaging at that high of a speed. Yeah, I think uh, you know once you're going that fast, your maneuverability takes a serious hit. Yeah, unless you're just like trying to whoosh, fly over something, drop something, maybe I don't know. Right. Yeah. So. 
like I said, Hughes Air West Flight 706. Uh, maybe I'll go on a little tangent. I'm already going to go on a tangent. Uh, this was an airline that had recently been acquired by Howard Hughes, which is why it was called Hughes Air West. It used to be Air West Airlines. And then uh, Howard Hughes had uh, acquired that airline. He wanted a, an airline on the West Coast. And so it became Hughes Air West. Uh, and we're talking about Hughes Air West Flight 706 here. Just a little bit of trivia for you. So uh, Hughes Air West Flight 706 was a regularly scheduled flight from Los Angeles to Seattle with several stopovers in Salt Lake City, Boise, Idaho, Lewiston, Idaho, uh, Paso, Washington, and Yakima, Washington. Uh, like I said, it was uh, June 6, 1971, and it was crewed by Captain Theodore Nicolay, who was 50 years old, who had 15,490 flight hours, and First Officer Price Bruner, who was 49 years old and had 17,128 flight hours. And the plane was a McDonnell Douglas DC-9 uh, with 5,542 hours on it. And there were three other crew members and 44 passengers on board for a total of 49 people, like I said. And at 6.02 p.m. Pacific time, Flight 706 took off from Los Angeles International Airport and it started making its way to Salt Lake City. So two days before this, on June 4th, First Lieutenant James R. Phillips and First Lieutenant Christopher E. Scheiss uh, had prepared to take flight in their McDonnell Douglas F-4B military jet. Phillips was 27 years old and had 440 hours, and Scheiss was 24 years old and had 195 hours. The jet was referred to as Bureau Number 458. So if you hear me say 458 or BN 458 or Bureau Number 458, I'm talking about the military jet, the F-4 Phantom. Both lieutenants were part of a flight of two aircraft that would depart from Marine Corps Air Station in El Toro, California. Phillips was the wingman, and Scheiss was the radar intercept officer for their plane. So these jets had two seats in them. Uh-huh. And all this is telling you is that Phillips was the pilot. He was the one sitting in front, and Scheiss was sitting behind him, and he was uh, in charge of the radar. So the radar intercept, it sounds like that's someone's job just to make sure they don't hit other things. Uh, it's to yeah, monitor targets and uh, maybe hit other things. We're going to get a little more into that in a bit here. And okay. I think that's, that's, that's one of the unsaid questions that... I kind of tried to set up at the the introduction for this episode. Like, this is a military fighter aircraft. How does it not detect that there's another plane nearby? Yeah. And it's it's not even a military plane that it hit. It's a giant commercial plane. Yeah. We're going to find out why. I mean, that's you've you've picked up on something here, Chris. So they would depart from El Toro, fly to McClellan Air Force Base in California to refuel, and then fly to McCord Air Force Base in Washington. Then they would return to El Toro, but stop at Mountain Home Air Force Base in Idaho for refueling on the way back. So this was an overnight cross-country uh, trip under visual flight rules, or VFR. As both planes took off from El Toro, they were notified that both the transponders had failed. However, they were still allowed to fly to McCord in Washington under the control of the air traffic control system by radar. So by this time, it's early June 5th, and both of the fighter planes continued from McCord to Mountain Home in Idaho, but during the landing approach, the radio in Bureau Number 458 failed. When you say their transponders weren't working, how does that affect them in a practical level? So we've talked about transponders a couple of times in past episodes. Uh, a transponder is like, a, think of it like a beacon, right? It lets air traffic controllers know precisely where they are, what speed they're going, what their altitude is. It's just like a beacon that lets other aircraft and air traffic control know where they are. And does that mean that the planes that they were in, their transponders weren't working or the receiver that would have received them wasn't working. Correct. The transponders in the planes had failed. And then, like I said, just to, to reiterate here, when they're landing in Idaho, the radio goes out in this particular fighter aircraft as well. Just one of them? Yeah, in number 458, the one okay. involved in this incident. So after landing, both the crews discussed the operational status of the aircraft, and the flight leader from the other plane decided he would go ahead and return to El Toro. 
Phillips and Scheiss were instructed to await repairs for their plane and then return when they could. So at this point, their plane, which is Bureau number 458, had an inoperative transponder, an inoperative radio, a leak in the oxygen system, and a degraded radar system. Oh my God. So yeah, they had a a bunch of stuff broken in their plane. So they had to wait for repairs before they could get back uh, in the air. They had no clue why? Or I guess we'll find out? Uh, I mean, yeah, they're just the pilots, right? I mean, it's not necessarily their job to to know why. They just got to get it fixed. So the maintenance personnel at Mountain Home replaced a fuse to fix the radio, but they did not have the personnel to check the transponder. Uh, They also were not able to repair the oxygen leak, and they did not attempt to restore the radar to peak performance at that time. So it was still working. It just wasn't working properly. Mm -hmm. On June 6th, the crew filed a VFR flight plan to Naval Auxiliary Air Station in Fallon, Nevada, below the area positive control because of the inoperative transponder and fuel requirements. And the area positive control is in airspace where all traffic uh, is under positive control and all aircraft must be operating under instrument flight rules. And at this time, the airspace began at flight level 240. So basically, they're just flying below 24,000 feet because uh, their transponder's not working, and this way they can do uh, visual flight rules. Okay. So after taking off from Mountain Home, the oxygen leak increased, and the oxygen was turned off for the select to Fallon. However, when they landed at Fallon, the maintenance personnel there couldn't provide the appropriate repairs either. So Phillips and Scheiss called their squadron duty officer for instructions, and they were advised to proceed to El Toro at low altitude. After refueling, the crew filed another VFR flight plan below the area positive control, but their departure was delayed from 2 p.m. to 5.16 p.m. because El Toro was closed for an air show that was happening between 2 and 4.30. And they're going, they have to go low because they don't have oxygen, because if they go too high, then there's no air, right? Yeah, so, you know, like we've talked about before, if you go too high, you can't breathe, and their system to give them oxygen wasn't working, so they had to keep a relatively low altitude so that they could continue to breathe fine in the cockpit. Gotcha. So the planned route was to fly to Fresno, then Bakersfield via the J-65 airway, Los Angeles via the J-5 airway, and then down to El Toro. El Toro's kind of near Irvine, California. If you're familiar, it's like Irvine's a little south of, uh, of LA. Okay. They departed at 5.16 p.m. and climbed to 7,500 feet. They then climbed to 15,500 feet to clear some mountains and clouds in their path. They then descended to 5,500 feet and remained at this altitude until reaching Bakersfield. When they were about 15 miles north of Bakersfield, they made a position report to a nearby flight service station. At this point, they decided to deviate from their flight plan a little. Uh Uh-oh. Well, they flew east of their planned course over Palmdale because they wanted to avoid anticipated heavy traffic over LA. They thought, you know, since their plane's not maybe not working quite right, and they want to avoid any potential airplane traffic over LAX. So they decided, like out of caution, they're like, let's go a little further east and avoid any potential airplanes and, uh, you know, go down that way. So they're nervous at this point because they're... Well, I don't know if they're, they're nervous necessarily. They're just taking appropriate precautions. Okay, yeah. Well, just imagine they, they have this plane that just keeps messing up and they're try, just trying to get home. Yeah. Right? Yeah, right. They just want to get back to where they came from. They just want to get back to El Toro. They want to be done with this probably at this point. So they continued flying pretty low until they were about 15 miles northwest of Palmdale. The visibility started to degrade due to haze and smoke in the area. So they climbed uh, to 15,500 feet. And when they leveled off, they were traveling about 420 knots, which is 483 miles an hour or 778 kilometers an hour. That's fast. It's really fast. When their equipment showed they were about 50 miles out of El Toro, Phillips executed a 360-degree aileron roll. And they just basically, it's like a barrel roll, right? It's like they don't do the big loop like a barrel roll, but they, uh, they roll the aircraft on yeah. its axis. 
And uh, the reason they do that is like that's something they do in this plane, so they can see they can see all around them to look for other aircraft. Oh, it's got a practical, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Just like, yeah, we made it. Barrel, do a barrel roll, you know? No, they, no, the practical application is they can see all around them and make sure that there's nothing else. At about one minute and twenty seconds later, though, Bureau Number Four Fifty Eight collided with Hughes Airways Flight Seven Hundred Six at fifteen thousand one hundred fifty feet. The tail of Bureau Number 458 was ripped off, and the cockpit of Flight 706 was also ripped off. Bureau Number 458 began to tumble violently about the lateral axis, which basically means they were flipping forward over their nose. Oh. Five seconds after the collision, Scheiss ejected from the aircraft and parachuted to the ground without injury. Both aircraft fell to the mountainous area below, caught fire, and were destroyed. Everyone on the Hughes Air West flight was killed in the crash. And Phillips, who was the pilot of the uh, F-4 Phantom, was not able to eject and was killed as well. Oh, my God. It's just the one person. Yeah. So the radar intercept officer on the F-4 was the only one who survived. And what happened was the ejection seats in that F-4 were not designed to be ejected from the canopy. Uh, and they had like an interrupter to prevent ejecting through the canopy. So basically, they don't want you to be able to eject through the glass above you. So they had to jettison the canopy in order for the seat to eject. That way they don't hit themselves, right? Yeah. There was a known issue where the front canopy, which is where the pilot was, would not jettison if the aft canopy jettisoned first. And that seems to be what happened here. The radar intercept officer ejected first, so the canopy in front wouldn't come off, so the pilot what? was unable to eject. This was a known issue. They were going to fix it. I believe this particular plane was scheduled to have this issue fixed later that same month. Oh, my God. So it was almost a thing where if the radar detector guy if he had ejected later the other guy might have survived right but i mean this also speculation i don't know if the pilot maybe died instantly right uh that's that's unknown but if he was alive and if he ejected first then the radar intercept officer would have been able to eject after him but because the radar intercept officer ejected first the canopy wouldn't come up for the the pilot so there's actually two different investigations that occur for something like this. There's, you know, the NTSB is going to investigate and the military is also going to investigate. So there's two different reports. Uh, we're going to focus a lot here on the NTSB report, just okay. letting you know right now. So the NTSB carried out this investigation and they started figuring out how these two planes could possibly collide like this. And it just so happened that there were four people who were observing the radar scope of the area that both these planes were in. And they all said that they could see Flight 706 and they could see other planes in the area but they could not see any targets in the proximity of Flight 706 at the time of the incident. On June 8th, which is you know two days after the incident, mm-hmm. the NTSB sent another F-4B jet to fly along the route that Bureau number 458 planned to see how well it would be picked up by the radar. And once the test jet rove above 7,500 feet, the radar system was able to track it easily. Huh. Uh, in fact, several controllers said they'd never seen the radar perform so well. I've, I've actually seen interviews with uh, some people who were working there at the time, some of the air traffic controllers who were working there at the time. And they've commented that the radar system at the time was an old World War II system and that it was unreliable at times. Okay. Just throwing that out there. Like like I said, this happened in 1971 and the equipment they were using at the time for the radar was even older than that. So it wasn't necessarily that great. Okay. Uh, anyway, going back to this test that I was talking about, this test that they conducted was done before they had a chance to interview Scheiss, who was the survivor. And when they did uh, interview him, they learned that the route that uh, they took was slightly different than the route that was filed. So on June 16th, they recreated the actual route as best they could and flew it three times to see how the radar services acted. They then flew three other flights in the area, testing various altitudes and positions as well. 
However, the target for the test jet showed up about 50% of the time on these new runs. The NTSB had to take photographs of almost every radar sweep for these tests, and after studying them, they decided that even when the target was seen by their radar, it would be hard to notice if the controller was unaware of the aircraft's presence. In that same interview I talked about, where I, I saw an uh, interview with the air traffic controllers who worked there mm-hmm. at the time, one of the air traffic controllers said that it wasn't unusual to see random blips like that. Like, unless they saw a trail of blips, they wouldn't think anything of it. They would think that maybe it was a malfunction of some kind. Okay, so yeah, just a bloop, random, that was normal? That it, it was possible. Okay. That they wouldn't think anything of it unless there was a trail. The test the NTSB performed was also compromised a little due to meteorological conditions being different and that the radar was performing differently due to parts being replaced. So the NTSB also thinks that if Bureau number 458 made any air traffic control contact in the area, the mm-hmm. controllers would have been able to determine that any questionable target on their radar screen would have been tentatively identified as Bureau number 458 and would have been able to better detect traffic. So basically they're just saying, since the F-4 never contacted air traffic control, the air traffic control had no reason to be looking out. They weren't, yeah. If they had been in contact, then air traffic control would have been able to do a better job here. Yeah, like they might have seen a random blip and been like, oh, that could be that plane that we heard about versus... Exactly. And just to go back here again, uh, I know I keep trying to, to beat this point home. The technology was so different back then. Again, referring to the interview with the air traffic controller who worked at the time, the process was not entirely automatic for them to track planes. They had little indicators that they would, like little physical indicators that they would put on their radar screen to keep track of where the flights were. Like magnets or something that they move along? They're not even magnets. Uh, he used to, he called them shrimp boats. They look like little, I don't know, like little blocks of wood or little pieces of plastic that they would put on the screen. And they would write with a grease pencil on those markers to show which planes they are. It's a very primitive system. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think now, you know, when, I, when we talk about air traffic control, people picture like a big computer screen with all the dots and all the information listed on it. It was not like that at the time. It was way more primitive. Yeah. I've been working from home for a little while now, and uh, I'll admit it, I've, I've gotten addicted to wearing sweats. I can't ever imagine wearing jeans or uh, stuff like I used to wear going back to the office. But, you know, after a while, wearing sweats all day for uh, a year uh, starts to feel kind of sloppy, maybe gets a little old. So uh, I've, been, I've been really excited to try to find a middle ground, something that looks good, but is still comfortable, like sweats, like, you know, doesn't have that discomfort of wearing jeans. So that's actually why I'm excited about our new partner here, Public Rec. They make leisure wear in waist and inseam sizes because comfort starts with a better fit. Uh, Right now, I'm actually wearing some right now, the all-day, everyday pants. They're more stylish alternative to sweatpants, more comfortable alternative to jeans. Uh, I got them. I want to wear them all the time. They're like my number one pick in my closet. I don't even know where my jeans are anymore. They've probably fallen off the back of my closet. They're down on the floor somewhere where where they belong. But they look great. They look uh, really sharp. I love them. They got zippers on the pocket. My phone doesn't fall out. They're great for lounging at home. Uh, if you need to head out, they look good. One day when I uh, go back out to bars or restaurants, uh, they'll look great for that too. Uh, they come in waisted inseam sizing. Uh, so they fit short guys, tall guys, everyone in between. Uh, I was a little worried. I, I you know, I, I ordered based on the measures measurements that I normally get. You never know. They Sometimes they fit a little weird. These perfectly, like a glove. Couldn't be happier w- with the fit. Uh, they're made from a breathable, stretchy, moisture-wicking fabric. You can wear them all day, every day, and they'll look brand new. Uh, they got zipper pockets. I mentioned that. You don't have to worry about your phone falling out when you sit. I hate that. Don't worry about it anymore. Phone stays in the pocket. Zipper technology. They come in nine different colors, one for each day of the week, and then some. Uh, now you get your whole wardrobe from Public Rec. They got incredibly comfortable shorts, t-shirts, Henleys, polos, hoodies, jackets, even golf gear. I admit it. I'm going to use our code. I'm going to go order more stuff right now as soon as I'm done recording this. 
Uh, but I, I guess I'll share it with you first. Uh, Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now they have an exclusive offer just for our Black Box Down listeners. Go to publicrec.com slash blackboxdown. Use promo code blackboxdown to receive 10% off. That's publicrec, P-U-B-L-I-C-R-E-C dot com slash blackboxdown. Use promo code blackboxdown for 10% off. Go do it now. Shudder is the streaming service with the best selection of horror, thriller, and supernatural movies, series originals from Hollywood favorites and cult classics to original series and critically acclaimed new genre films you wouldn't find anywhere else. Streaming uncut and commercial free right to your favorite devices. Right now, they have a Golden Globe nominee. Shudder's La Llorona was recently nominated for the Best Foreign Language Feature Golden Globe. This title, which also won Best Film at the 2019 Venice Film Festival, was an official selection to Sundance 2020. It blends together the terror of both myth and reality into a devastating expose of the genocidal atrocities against the Mayan community in Guatemala. They've got such an amazing selection. I recently rewatched uh, an old Korean horror movie I hadn't seen in years called The Tale of Two Sisters. You can't find it anywhere else. They, I don't even think it's available on home video. You can't even buy a disc if you wanted to. The only way to watch it is on Shudder. That's how deep their catalog is. It's just amazing all the different things you can see. And like I said, you know, between La Llorona, The Tale of Two Sisters, like I said, we've got a great international library of all different kinds of movies from all different countries, a range of genres, you know, from old classics, modern favorites, you name it, they got it. So you should get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes must-see titles like Color Out of Space, Host, The Mortuary Collections, plus all the best horror documentaries and the hit creep show TV series from executive producer Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. Try Shudder for free for 30 days. Go to Shudder.com. Use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com. Use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. Again, go to Shudder.com. Use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN and try Shudder for free for 30 days. Uh, go watch your scary movies. So... The NTSB then started to analyze the flight of Bureau number 458, and they thought that a low-altitude flight to El Toro was a logical solution to the problems that they had. Uh, the transponder was not required to be functional, and the cockpit pressurization negated the physical need for supplemental oxygen. Basically, when they closed the cockpit, it pressurized, so they didn't need the supplemental oxygen. Mm-hmm. They also thought the directions to fly east of their planned route to avoid traffic was logical, and the decision to climb in altitude due to deteriorating visibility further demonstrated concern for adequate vigilance. So again, the NTSB is saying, it seems like everything the F-4 did was right. They're taking all the right steps here. Yeah, okay. However, the altitude that they climbed to placed them in an area that is usually used for eastbound traffic to climb to higher altitudes. Uh-oh. Bureau number 458 was also traveling at a high speed, and this, along with the size of the plane, would have made it difficult for other traffic to detect if they were not aware of its presence. The NTSB calculated that the closing rate between the two aircraft, was about 1,000 feet per second, which is similar to the velocity of a bullet being shot out of a 45 caliber gun. So 1,000 feet per second is 682 miles an hour or 1,097 kilometers an hour. That's how fast they were headed towards each other. Right. That's the speed at which they closed with each other. And we talked about this before in the Brazilian uh, collision. It's like what little time you have because of the, the tremendous speed that's involved. Yeah. Uh, there was also some discussion, to a lesser extent, about the visibility out of the DC-9 cockpit and about whether or not the F-4 was approaching like from just the wrong angle where it was obstructed by like a gap in the window. You know, mm-hmm. if you ever look at a cockpit, the windows aren't seamless. You know, there's like uh, structural oh. gaps between the metal. It's speculated that maybe the F-4 was also approaching from a direction where it was blocked by where there wasn't a window. As far as like what angle they hit each other, or is it like almost head on? So picture the DC-9 flying straight ahead, like straight ahead away from you. The F-4 would have come from the left 
and impacted it so that its vertical stabilizer sliced through the cockpit. So it, it came from the left side. Yeah. So the vertical stabilizer sliced through the cockpit and the right wing went through the cabin a little bit as well. Uh, and that's why the cockpit was sliced off, actually. The cockpit got separated from the rest of the plane because of the collision. Yeah, well, it sounds like the DC-9, did, how could they have seen them if they were coming from the left? I mean, that's... Yeah, they didn't see them at all. Um, the flight data recorder uh, showed that there was no evasive maneuver taken. They had no idea uh, that that plane was coming, and they got hit totally unaware. Yeah, and you mentioned something earlier that the altitude that they were at was res- typically reserved for flights flying a certain direction yeah flying east yeah and i'm just i'm recalling this from the last plane collision one it's like and i didn't know this prior to this that the different altitudes are reserved for certain directions so it's like twenty one thousand might be people headed east right you you use even or odd flight levels depending on what direction you're going yeah which is something i had no idea was a thing but totally makes sense Right. It's like, it should be common sense. I think in this case, they were just talking about the specific, this was a specific corridor that was used to fly out. Because I'm, I'm sure you've flown out of LA. Uh, I'm sure you've had this happen where like, if you're flying back to Austin, which is east of LA, you'll take off and you fly west out over the Pacific Ocean. And then you turn and then you make your flight east. And that's when you start climbing to get to your cruising mm-hmm. altitude. That's basically what this plane was doing. They were going to Salt Lake City to the east, but they had taken off to the west and had to turn back around. Uh, okay. to the east, and that's where this occurred. So there were two other decisions made by Bureau number 458 that had a significant effect on the collision. First, he did not attempt to request radar service. Doing so would have alerted the controllers that a non-transponder target was in the area, and an attempt to establish radar identification would have been made. But even if identification was not made, the controllers would have known the general area the plane was in and would have been able to warn other traffic that it was around. Mm -hmm. So again, this goes back to the air traffic control had no idea that the military plane was out there. So what could they do? Yeah. The second decision made was Phillips requested that Scheiss conduct a radar mapping exercise, which would require him to look down rather than keep his eyes outside the cockpit to help look for traffic in an area with heavy traffic. So rather than looking around, the radar intercept officer was looking down at his radar, which, as we know, was working in a degraded fashion. It wasn't working properly. It had it had problems, mechanical mm-hmm. problems. So uh, Shai said in an interview that about three to 10 seconds before the collision, he raised his head and saw Flight 706 out of his peripheral vision about 50 degrees to the right and slightly beneath them. He started to shout at Phillips as Phillips initiated an evasive roll, uh, but they weren't quick enough and he did not see Flight 706 take any evasive action. The NTSB recognizes that the visibility in the rear of the cockpit might have made it difficult to see Flight 706 in time anyway, but they still think it would have been best if Scheiss was tasked with looking out for traffic rather than the radar exercise that he was doing. Hmm, okay. In fact, I, when they first interview the radar intercept officer, you know, this all happens really quickly, he thought that Flight 706 hit them. Oh. He thought that the DC-9 had come from behind them and hit them just because, you know, everything happened so quickly. Yeah, I can't imagine just how quickly that went from fine to horrific like mm-hmm. i mean how many seconds was it from that guy say you say two seconds how many seconds the radar intercept officer estimates that it was somewhere between three and ten seconds before the collision that he raised his head and saw the flight in his peripheral vision yeah that's so fast and who knows like at first you might think what is that is that a plane oh no that's a plane yeah and then that's that was three seconds then that that's it yeah so Because Bureau number 458 was flying VFR, uh, they were not required to be in contact with air traffic control unless they breached certain airspaces. 
And the Federal Aviation Regulation places the burdens on all pilots to see and avoid other aircraft, which seems like common sense. However, as demonstrated in this accident, the NTSB notes that either not seeing oncoming aircraft or misinterpreting visual cues of an oncoming aircraft is highly probable. The crew for Bureau Number 458 had formal training in scanning techniques but were unable to avoid this collision. The crew for Flight 706 had no formal company training on looking out or scanning techniques, and no training was required by the company or the FAA. The board finds that the see-and-avoid concept is simply inadequate and the development of collision avoidance systems must be vigorously pursued. The pilot for Flight 706 was actually a former uh, military pilot as well, so I, I, he should have had that same training when he was in the military. It's just not something that's reinforced uh, at the mm-hmm. time in civilian flying. And this is before you know those collision avoidance systems like we talked about yeah. in our Brazil collision episode. So, as always, there were some findings here that the NTSB came up with. Flight 706 was operating in accordance with the instrument flight rule flight plan under radar control of local air traffic control. Bureau number 458 was operating in accordance with the visual flight rules flight plan and was not under control of the ATC system. Bureau number 458 was not detected on radar because of an inoperative transponder and a low-level temperature inversion in the area. So again, their transponder wasn't working and meteorological conditions Mm -hmm. made it Mm -hmm. difficult for them to be detected. And a side note here is that this is not uh-huh. in their findings. This is some, something uh, I, f- I feel also compelled to mention. It's also extra difficult for the Hughes Air West pilots to see the F-4 Phantom. Because if you think about it, these fighter planes like the F-4 Phantom, they're painted like that bluish gray color. Oh, specifically yeah. to make them more difficult to see in the air. Because if they're fighting another plane, they want to be able to hide from visual yeah. uh, cues. So just even something as mundane as their paint color could have made them more difficult to be seen. And they're also way smaller. Like Yeah, they're also way smaller and way faster. The pilot of Bureau number 458 exercised poor judgment in performing an aileron roll, but the roll did not contribute to the accident. The pilot of Bureau number 458 attempted to eject from the aircraft, but he was unable to do so because the Ford canopy did not jettison. When you said executed poor judgment for doing a barrel roll. Aileron roll. Yeah, I was just calling it barrel roll. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that because it wasn't necessary? Because you said they were doing it to check their surroundings. It probably wasn't necessary. They're, they're probably upset that he did that rather than both pilots be looking forward to where they're going. Okay. That would be my guess there based on what we know. But it wasn't like they're saying, oh, he did an air... air Aileron roll. He did a barrel roll <laughs> for uh, for fun. Like it was, it did serve a practical purpose, just that it wasn't the right time to do it. Correct. Okay. If Bureau number 458 had requested radar traffic advisories, the controller would have advised Air West 706 of the presence of Bureau number 458 and the probability of avoiding the collision would have increased significantly. Both aircraft were theoretically of sufficient size to permit detection by each other at 35 seconds prior to collision. However, detection and assessment were probably compromised by target size due to high closure rate, target contrast, and location in the peripheral visual field and other visual limitations. So again, they should have seen each other, but the F4 is small, they're going fast, and the color they're painted, like there's very little contrast against the sky, and they were coming out of the peripheral view of Air West 706's uh, captain. Yeah, okay. At 35 seconds before impact, both aircraft were on an essentially constant relative bearing and would have been difficult to detect because each target would be near the minimum detectable size and would remain relatively stationary. Again, like we said, they just go from really small in the distance to all of a sudden you're on top of them. In view of the absence of evasive action on the part of Air West 706, it is logical to conclude that the crew did not cite Bureau number 458 in time to initiate such evasive actions. Like I said earlier, yeah. they yeah. didn't make any evasive action, so 
it's safe to assume they never saw the plane coming. Yeah. The pilot of the F-4B probably first observed the target of the DC-9 about 8 to 10 seconds prior to the collision, devoted the first portion of his brief period to assessing such cues as relative bearing speed and climb angle, and initiated a reflex evasive maneuver approximately 2 to 4 seconds prior to the collision. So like we said before, he thinks he sees a plane maybe, then you know, very quickly it's like, what is that? Is that a plane? What direction is it going? Am I going to hit? Like uh-huh. trying to figure out all these things. Yeah. And then, you know, that only takes a couple seconds. And then, oh no, try to make an evasive maneuver, but it's too late by that point. Yeah, because it's just coming so fast. Mm-hmm. There's also a version where you see something in the distance and you start moving and then you move into it, you know? Right. Because you're, you're, there's so many planes, they're going a direction, you're going a direction, and it's three-dimensional, so it's... Mm-hmm. There's a lot of variables you have to try to figure out. So the National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the failure of both crews to see and avoid each other, but recognizes that they only had marginal capability to detect, assess, and avoid the collision. Other causal factors include a very high closure rate, co-mingling of IFR and VFR traffic in an area where the limitations of the air traffic control system precludes effective separation of such traffic, and failure of the crew of Bureau Number 458 to request radar advisory service, particularly considering the fact they had an inoperable transponder. Yeah. So they made a few recommendations. Of course, it's what we always are curious to see, you know, after a terrible tragedy, what recommendations are made, what changes in the industry to make sure these kinds of things don't happen again. So the first one was install videotape at all FAA air traffic control radar displays, both terminal and en route for use as an investigation tool. So basically just, oh. yeah, we, if you need it, you can replay the tape and see exactly what happened. Yeah. It seems like common sense now, right? But remember, this was back in the early 70s. Videotape in the 70s was, you know, not super common. Right. Still pretty new. Install an open area microphone at each terminal and center sector position to record all conversation at the control positions. Again, this is at air traffic control. Set up a mic and record what people are saying. That way, if something happens, you can play it back. Yeah. Establish climb and descent corridors from the top of the terminal control areas to the base of the area positive control to remain in effect until the base of the APC has been lowered to the top of the TCAs. So basically just further establish those corridors where there's a lot more control over to make sure that other planes are aware when there are planes taking off and landing around the airport here. Yeah. I've heard an air traffic controller describe it as an upside-down wedding cake, where on the ground, it's like a a big cylinder that then gets bigger at different altitudes and continues. Like It's like an upside-down cake, Uh an upside-down layered cake, so that as you get higher, the area becomes bigger and bigger that you have to be aware of. Okay, I get you. Like, yeah, just the area of danger, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. Yeah, I think at the time... These areas were just the routes. Like it was a very narrow, it was almost, you could think of it like a road. You know, it was a very narrow route mm-hmm. that they would uh, keep an eye out on. Uh, but because of this, like now it's it's much bigger that uh, you have to be aware of. And they're kind of like right away. It's like, okay, this upside down cake section, they have this right away kind of thing. I guess you could say that. It's like the, you have, the airport has right away, basically. Yeah. Be aware planes are coming in to land and take off and you need to know that that's a possibility that they're going to be here. Okay. Establish more definitive procedures for the guidance of controller personnel in handling code 7700 aircraft. So that's just like an emergency transponder. Basically have definitive procedures for controllers knowing how to handle uh, when they hear an emergency um, alert come through. When you say emergency alert, that means a plane without a transponder or something bad happened? Something bad happened. Okay. 
Uh, I believe at the time it was relatively, it wasn't rare for them to get false alarms. So I think they were kind of desensitized to it. So basically this is just like, we need to make the system better so that there are not as many false alarms and that people pay attention. Because I think in this case, like an emergency alarm went off, but I think all the air traffic controllers initially ignored it thinking it was a a false alarm. And then they realized Mm. they couldn't get a hold of Air West 706 and that it was a real alarm. Okay. Coordinate with the Department of Defense and in areas where a large intermix of civil and military traffic exists, develop a program to ensure that appropriate graphical depictions of airspace utilization and typical flow patterns are prominently displayed at all airports and operational bases for the benefit of all airspace users. Basically, just show better maps of where the planes (laughs) might be when they're coming in to take off and land, you know, and and be aware on both sides, on the civil aviation as well as the military side uh, of these things. Yeah. There were three here specifically to the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. Uh, Review the feasibility of restricting all types of low-level training, which requires airspeed in excess of the federal aviation regulations limitations to designated restricted areas and low-level navigation routes. So that's saying don't go that fast when you're down low where there's normal people. Right. If you're going to do that kind of training, make sure you're in designated restricted areas and uh, go to special places to do that. Don't intermix with civil aviation when doing that. Yeah. Rephrase the wording contained in your altitude airspeed limitations and delineate explicitly those instances wherein airspeeds in excess of the 10,000 feet or 250 knots limitations are authorized. The board believes that the exceptions should be limited to the following. A. Climbs and descents to traffic patterns, authorized and or designated training areas, and low-level navigation routes. B. Those instances where safety of either crew or aircraft operations in excess of the limitation. So, Again, just better defining where they can go in excess airspeed and create limits on them. Yeah. Institute a program to provide more publicly to the existence, function, and use of the FAA radar advisory service in those instances where VFR flight is required through high-density traffic areas. Consideration should be given to making the request for such service a mandatory procedure. So again, if they're going to be flying with visual flight rules through traffic areas, let the air traffic control know. Yeah. Let them know that you're going to be there. That way they can make sure to move traffic around you and uh, that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Did they ever figure out why those two planes, transponders and radios weren't working? That's probably just par for the course. You know, stuff breaks all the time. You know, we have incidents even what we talk about here where a plane will have something break. They'll have to go in and maintenance, you know, to maintenance, get something fixed or get something tagged as it's broken, but it's okay. Or can we still fly like this? You know, it's, it's just par for the course. You know, I'm sure... Everyone's had a car at some point where the air conditioner doesn't work or the radio doesn't work. You know, it's like, yeah, it's fine. Like, I'll fix it eventually or, you know, who cares? I don't need that. Yeah, I'll fix it when I get home. Right. Same kind of thing. It's it's, it's just bound to happen. And, you know, like I said, they couldn't get it serviced at the airfields where they were. So they were just going to try to come back home and take care of it at their home base. For the DC, you said uh, they hit the cockpit. How... Did it basically... Did everyone pretty much die on impact? That's a tough one. Um... So the the cockpit was pretty much sheared off. And I believe, if I'm remembering off the top of my head here, I believe the cockpit was found a mile away from the rest of the wreckage. Um, wow. And that the the main part of the wreckage, eyewitnesses describe it as tumbling through the air okay. before it came down and hit the ground. So it's possible some people were still alive uh, in that strapped into their seats. I believe some seats were found, you know, separated from the, yeah. from the wreckage with people still strapped into them. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it's possible that people were still alive uh, on 706 as it uh, as it fell to the ground, which sounds terrible. It's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Yeah, yeah. 
It's not something I would ever hope anyone would have to experience. But yeah, I mean, and that's that's an unusual thing. I, I, there were quite a few eyewitnesses to this incident. You know, if you think about it. It, it, it didn't happen, you know, over L.A., but it's still, that whole area is still fairly populated. So yeah. you know, numerous people saw the collision. And so investigators were able to talk to them and, you know, try to piece things together from uh, eyewitness accounts. Thankfully, no one, I guess, was hurt from the debris. It all came down in kind of a mountainous area uh, away from town. That's good. But that's it. That's uh, Airways 706. Uh, you know, things, like, like we said, the industry learned a lot. Things are a lot safer nowadays. But uh, I'm always fascinated to hear what led to the tremendous safety we have nowadays in aircraft travel. Yeah. Anyway, if you like this podcast, again, I recommend you give us a follow on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at BlackBoxDownPod. And uh, like Chris said earlier, share it with a friend. Let someone know. I'm sure you have a friend who uh, probably would also love to listen to this podcast. You might have one, or you might have all your followers. Who knows? Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> all of your followers might like it. Oh, I should also recommend, uh, if you uh, want to help uh, support us a little more directly, we do have... Shirts available. If you go to store.roosterteeth.com, you can get a black box down shirt. Uh, I think we have some more products coming out here pretty soon. I don't think they'll be out in time for the time this episode comes out, but keep checking back. We're going to have a, a few more things up there real soon, and we'll let you yeah. know as soon as they hit the store. They're not going to be shirts, so if you want to get a shirt, get a shirt. Good point. Yeah, there are other things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, if you want a shirt, go ahead and get the shirt. It's a great shirt. Highly recommend it. I wear it all the time. <laughs> Me too. Thanks for listening, everybody. 